So this is the fourth talk on the four Bodhisattva vows. And this is on Dharma gates are boundless, vowing to enter them. If you were to go back to um, Sanskrit or Chinese or Japanese or Korean, you wouldn't find I vow to enter them because that's uh, extraneous. We just do that in our language because it sounds a little strange to us to say Dharma gates are boundless, vowing to enter them. But that's actually what it says. So Dharma is one of these words that we have no appropriate equivalent. Maybe it means truth or way or law. Those are some common ways that Dharma is translated. I think in Zen, we, we might say we practice to discover what Dharma is. We may not know at the outset, but we're curious. Another meaning of Dharma in the, in the Indian cultures, as many of you know, is something about actualizing personal calling, that each person has their Dharma. And it had something to do with your situation in life, the context within which you were born revealed to you and called forth who and what you needed to be. Dharma gates are boundless, vowing to enter them. Listen to how these different ways of saying or thinking it feel for you. And, and notice, notice the difference. Entering the gate of truth, entering my truth gate, my gate of truth, or entering truth. Doesn't it have a different valence or meaning, the different ways of sensory, saying it, is there, is there one gate of truth entering the gate of Dharma, entering my gate of Dharma? So I don't think we have a, a better word than, than truth or law or way. Um, maybe you can think of another synonym, plug in and substitute as, as you like. Of course, the word is not the point. The problem to me when we translate it as truth is in our way of thinking, truth has an opposite. The opposite of truth is falsehood. But the Dharma has no opposite. The Dharma is not being on the right side of the argument. As Rumi said so nicely, it's meeting in the field beyond right and wrong. The field beyond opposites. And then from that place, we look and see what serves happiness. Perhaps that was the, the Buddha's awakening, meeting himself in that field beyond right and wrong. And then from that place, well, what, what is the most joyful and free way to live? Because it's not a matter of some um, inbuilt purpose or meaning or truth. So Dharma gates are boundless. How can we understand this? One way 
Or here's a number of ways you might uh, think about what this, what this means and what this is inviting us into. Every moment teaches and presents the truth of cause and effect. Every moment. Every moment teaches and presents the nature of mind. Every moment. Every moment teaches and presents the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, its cause, the possibility of becoming free from it, freedom from it. Every moment teaches and presents either discriminating mind or its absence, where things are perfect as they stand. Every moment teaches knowing and not knowing. We're confronted with that kind of inwoven dynamic in life. And it will teach these things if we are vowing to enter. Right? So there's something about Dharma gates are boundless. It's saying that no matter what point or place or intersection or moment or mood or time in your life situation you're at, the, the, the Dharma is present there. It's being revealed. And our orientation is what calls that forth. In other words, the universe is continual feedback. It's continual feedback. Your body gives you feedback. Your mind gives you feedback. Your relationships give you feedback. They feed back your own state of mind. And your own state of mind feeds back the moment that you end up experiencing. We can think about this vow of gates of truth are without boundary on an exoteric level and an inner level and on a secret level. That's a tantric Buddhist thing that all teachings have these, these different levels. The exoteric level is that this vow means to practice and gain skill in all the methods of awakening. So that as a, a bodhisattva practitioner, your heart is set on um, aiding the great project of awakening. You want to contribute to people becoming free of suffering and finding uh, a, a spiritual fullness in themselves. And one of the ways to do that is to get a really wide palette of ways of, of helping people do that. So this is the principle of upaya. Upaya. It's said that when we are awake and we're free from dogma, there are endless ways in which we can invite people into the experience of freedom. They're not, they've not been exhausted. One of the interesting things that's happened in um, the West and in North America is Buddhism in Asia became so codified and the traditions became so 
orthodox in some ways that Japanese Roshis, for example, were very happy to leave Japan because they got here and they could teach very freely. They could do things, they could um, express skillful means that they couldn't really do in Japan because it was just outside of the establishment and they were getting too criticized. And someone like uh, Maizumi Roshi thought it was really interesting the things that some of his disciples were doing, like Big Mind and what Bernie Glassman was doing, because they saw that this is about Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. I vow to find out all the different ways to enter the human heart on a deeper level. So if you took this on in, in this way, you might practice in a lot of different traditions. You might try different styles of meditation, not necessarily because you need to, but because you want to really learn how to become um, flexible because it's not one size fits all. Right? And if you're um, a parent or a teacher in any capacity, you or a manager, you get that, that you have something you need to impart or share and each person who comes towards you hears things and needs to hear it, needs to have it presented in a different way. If you're the kind of teacher who says, this is what it is and you, you have to meet me here, that's fine. But you might have a wider ability to serve if you say, huh, how can I present it so this person gets it and this person gets it and so forth. So that's part of the exoteric level. In some of the Mahayana scriptures, they would praise the advanced practitioners and say they attained mastery in the means of taming living beings. I really hate phrases like that. They make my skin crawl a little bit. I don't like the idea that I'm being tamed, that I'm like some untamed creature and the, the bodhisattvas are going to tame me. But they mean that we get really creative in seeing how do people suffer? What are the ways people suffer? And what are the ways to help them stop? Right? And we could do that, do that for ourselves, of course, too. So on the, the inner level, a more intimate meaning of Dharma gates are boundless. All moments, as I was saying earlier, are equal access points to awakening. We can practice every moment. Every moment, without exception, is an opportunity to practice. You don't need a mind that's quiet. You don't need circumstances that are peaceful. You don't need to be married or single or a monk or a layperson. All of that is just the background. Every moment can practice. The gates are boundless. Gates are boundless. And especially the ones that we think, no, I can't practice here. Those are really the potent ones. There's a famous Tibetan saying um, to bring adversity onto the path. And especially the places where we tend to be most triggered, that's where the gold is. I think about it like this. It's helpful to uh, think about our weak spots in practice. 
think about the places where I fall into reactivity or stress um, overtakes the mind or um, I just become mean and kind of crabby. And then to intend to enter there, use the power of intention that when you're on the edge of entering that moment, that intention carries over and you thread practice into that situation that's normally just an unconscious mess. Because it won't happen otherwise, or let's say it's unlikely. But it's satisfying to do so. It's like Dharma gates are boundless and that we're not taking advantage of it. Something about that can um, weigh on us or, or not, not sit right. Related to this, it came to mind for me. I was working with someone earlier today and they said, Jogan, why are we here? (laughs) As if I knew. Right. But one of these, um, are they universal questions that, that arise for people, whether we articulate them or not, this kind of question of why are we here? And of course, many people nowadays conclude we're here for no reason. Or they turn to um, a book or a God to tell them why they're here. But in our practice, we have to decide why we're here. It's not that there's no reason we're here, but there's no fixed reason why we're here. It's not built into the universe. You could say you're here because a sperm, you know, penetrated an egg and you were, you were born. It's one answer to why you were here. But there's no Buddha in the sky looking down and waiting for us to fulfill the ultimate design. But Dharma gates are boundless. Each moment is an opportunity to see more deeply, to make meaning of life. So the secret level of Dharma gates are boundless is this is awakening. You're already there. There's absolutely nothing to do and nowhere to go. If awakening was something that you could try really hard and meditate a lot and be a really nice person and then it would happen, that would be something that was just produced by conditions. And in time it would be swept away. But we're already walking and talking in the, in the vast sky. The gate of Dharma is boundless. It's gateless, they say. The gateless gate. Boundless means you can't enter or depart. This is the the pickle I think we encounter when we come to a certain place in meditation and we recognize, I can't do anything more. I've reached the limit of doing's virtue. Because you can't enter the boundless. You're already there. So we're already in the boundless aperture of of truth. So then what does this vow mean 
from that perspective? What are you vowing to enter? If we're already in awakening, if we're already free on this, on this most intimate level, do we just go with the flow? There's a koan that goes something like this. Uh, Master Changsha one day went wandering in the mountains. And he came back from his wandering. And his head monk kind of crosses armed and said, what were you doing? You know, it seemed like this was kind of a serious, one of those kind of serious religious people who, you know, having fun is suspicious. And he said something like, what are you doing? And he said, first, I followed the falling blossoms, and then I came back chasing the fragrant grasses. And the monk said, well, sounds like you were in a spring dream. And he said, better than the purity of the autumn lotus. So there's something about wandering in our life that's not just going with the flow. Sometimes we're engaging choice and sometimes we're suspending it. Sometimes we have vow, we want to learn something really clear, and sometimes we're in a place of aimlessness. Sometimes we oppose the flow, we anchor down, and sometimes we float on our back. And it's all part of the Dharma gate. Another way to say it is, I vow to suffer a lot so I know the human condition. Dharma gates are boundless. All, all of it. All of it. In other words, as a bodhisattva practitioner, if you can relate to that, that concept, it's not better to have it all together. You learn a lot more when you wander in the mountains. I vow to suffer a lot so I know the human condition. To really live life. To see the truth of our practice in all different situations. Towards the end of his life, Dogen Zenji said something like, even though I hold myself up in temples on the mountains, it would probably be better if I practiced in the bars. And he was kind of criticizing himself for um, living in a, a little bit of a small Dharma gate. So in this view, we context our life in the desire to wake up we let that be fundamental, the desire to wake up for the sake of all beings. And then whichever way we're carried or wander, there's no mistake. We could cause harm, yes. But on some level, if we're really living our, in our best from the intention to awaken for the sake of all beings, there's no mistake and yet there's a dynamic tension between that and refinement to practicing gain skill in awakening. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. I don't, I don't 
take my practice as um, some some place of nothing more to do. I'm just going to float along with life now that I've figured out how to be equanimous. No, that was considered um, the Haku and Zenji would say that's the black demon's cave of Zen. A sense that you actually win a sense of equanimity, but you secretly become kind of dead because you don't want to engage with life anymore. The equanimity is safer than facing the places in which we need to grow. So part of this is uh, about refinement. Dharma gates are boundless. I don't quite, I haven't seen all I could see. I think of um, Chosen and Hogan Roshi as really um, exemplars of this in particular. You know, they've they've got more than a hundred years of practice combined, and they still discover new teachers and go to retreats and are curious about what ways of practicing that they haven't tasted, or what ways they could refine their own offering. This vow comes out of a belief system that the Dharma is the ultimate medicine. This is before modern and postmodern thinking, where for us it's very uncomfortable to think Buddhism is great, it's the best, it's got the truth. You may secretly think that, but in general, at least we're supposed to pretend we don't really believe that. We want to be open-minded. But this kind of teaching came out of the sense that the teachings of Dharma and Zen, they cut to the very heart of suffering. And so therefore, they're the most valuable thing you can give or do for people. So it's helpful to um, reflect on that and to reflect on your own sense of what is, what is valuable. What really benefits people? The Bodhisattva's vow, you could say, is, is, dis, is choosing with one's own proclivities to make a life that's a gift, to make a life that somehow helps free others. What's the most profound gift we can give? What empowers people the most? What relieves suffering? And we could say whatever relieves suffering or engenders clarity, deepens our human concern, amplifies creativity, brings levity, that's a Dharma gate. They're boundless. They're not limited to something that came to us from Asia. However, some things will cut to the essence of these and go straight to the source and some will be less direct.